class. You've heard of it, and you can often hear it, in the way I pronounce the word itself, with a slightly longer and darkened R sound. You can start to make some judgments about where I'm from, where I went to school, and what perhaps my parents did. You might also be able to guess something about my class background from my name, Richard Hames, and the fact that I'm here introducing a new series on class on Navarra FM. That's a good indicator of upbringing itself, because although only 7% of the UK population went to a fee-paying school, just over half of our journalists did. But these kinds of markers are only one account of what class is. Another tradition of thinking, the Marxist one, considers class quite differently. There, the simplest version goes that the proletariat, or sometimes working class, are those who are required to work to survive, and the bourgeoisie are those who own the means of production. These two different concepts of class are of course to some extent correlated, although it's a shame that they are so often merely conflated. Such is the muddle over class in British society that we thought it was time to get back to basics on Navarra FM and think about this essential category of leftist thought. And to do so, we're bringing you a short series of special episodes presented by three thinkers, writers and broadcasters who have plenty to say on the subject. John Merrick, Judith Jakes and Nihal El Asa. John is an editor at Verso Books and has written essays on his upbringing in the north of England. Juliet is a cultural critic and Navarra Media contributor, known for her book Trans, a memoir, her podcast on arts and culture called Sweet 212, and her writing on football. And Nahal is a political analyst and writer from Egypt, now living in London, where she has written for Navarra on the topic of Palestine. Across the next few episodes, they get to the bottom of the dynamics of class in the contemporary world. In episode one, they ask if our recent muddle over class is a product of a reactionary political strategy that tries to associate the left with tofu-eating wokerati, or whether it reflects, perhaps also, an ongoing complexification of the way that class is composed under capitalism. How does the experience of migration affect one's class position? And we find out which of our illustrious co-hosts went to the same grammar school as one Keir Starmer. Welcome to Navarra FM. You're joining us in the Navarra FM studio in Bermondsey in South London. And we've got a discussion today about what class means today. I'm your host, John Merrick, and I'm joined by... Juliet Jenks. And Nihal Asar. I can't believe you gave away our uh, assassination coordinates that easily. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're going to talk about the kind of idea of class in the 21st century. You know, what is class in Britain? You know, what are the kind of classes that make up kind of contemporary Britain? 
and you know even harder to kind of think about how do you define them because a couple of years ago there was a piece by a, a sociologist at LSE called Sam Friedman who does kind of very interesting work on on the elites and he did a survey with um it's like 200 very professional middle class people I was interested they all said that they were definitionally working class and there's a quote from one of them which I thought was incredibly funny at the time She's uh, this woman, she's an actor. I think she's the kind of daughter as well of, of kind of um, well-to-do middle-class people. And she said, I consider my background to be working class, even though I don't sound like that. And obviously she's kind of pushed a bit further. Um, later, it turns out that she went to a private school. But she says, one of the small ones, quite cheap. And I like... In no one's game, in no one's kind of head, surely, is that working class. But, pe- you know, all of these kind of people, these 200 people surveyed, work in finance, accounting, whatever else, solid middle-class jobs. No one said that they were middle-class. Everyone said they were working class. You know, I think there's this kind of general muddle in society at large about what class is. But also this, people really don't want to be seen as, as upper class. So how, how do we think about it, particularly on the left? How do we as the left kind of think about it? How should we think about it? Yeah, I think... On the left, we need to push back against this kind of like colloquial understanding of class that's like lower class, upper class, middle class, and think of class like Marx defined it like as a social relation. Because if you think about class as lower class or middle class or upper class, you just think about the level of income and the lifestyle that emerges out of that as opposed to it being a social relation between different segments of society that are in a conversation with each other. Not to belabor this point, but like who owns the means of production and who gets to work for the person that, you know, owns the means of production. But in a way, you know, that the kind of, I suppose, kind of colloquial definition or the cultural definition of class is the way that most people experience it. Most people live class not as their relationship to the means of production, right? Most of them live, live it as, well, you know, my granddad worked down the mines and therefore no matter what job I do, or even, you know, I'm in a, you know, grow up in a council estate in, you know, a deindustrialized part of the north of England, you're going to experience that differently than someone who, you know, even if kind of comparative relation to the means of production is a worker, kind of gets a wage at the end of it, doesn't even need to be a salaried one, but has a very different kind of life outcome or, you know, kind of earning potential or even kind of cultural capital. People experience it in cultural ways, you know. A nurse doesn't necessarily earn much, but that's a kind of professional job. Probably not going to be married to a doctor, although that does happen, but probably more likely to be married to a forklift truck driver. Now, that's a very different kind of relationship, again, because you're not what is the relationship with a nurse to the kind of means of production? It's people experience it in different ways. It's not as, but you know, it's one of the harder things to think about, right? And you're right. Yeah. Like to an extent as well, like if you think about it, for example, football players, they're like highly earning <laughs> waged workers. I think you mean my proletarian you, brothers and sisters. Where, where do you place them? Yeah. For example. Yeah, totally. They're not, I mean, in a way they're kind of, what are they kind of like, middle-class subcontractors or something. I don't, I don't really know because, you know, with the agents and whatever else, how would you even define that? You know, it is, but I think most people think of class when they think of class, you know, and I think this, I'm talking obviously beyond the left. I think the, the left has a different relationship to class. Yeah, well, I think the left, yeah, likes often think of class in the terms that you've you've talked about. Uh, and then we have a, a mass media 
that has evolved over 150 years or so to obfuscate that point and really to act as a ring around the upper classes against the formation of class consciousness a lot of the time. Um, so really the version of class that our sort of media political complex would like to push on us is this sort of more idea of more cultural conceptions of class and it flits between sort of socioeconomic class and cultural class as and when it suits. So, you know, I, I think a lot about that um, preposterous Helen Pidd article for The Guardian where she went on uh, Poverty Safari to uh, Lee in uh, Lancashire and met uh, a 16-year-old, a retired white man who she'd met before who complained that, you know, the place had become insufficiently white, even though it was sort of like 97% white. Uh, and she met um, a man who owned a pizza restaurant, whose brother was a property developer. You know, they all claimed to be working class and said they were like really glad not to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, in particular, the pizza owner sort of invoked his parents and his grandparents and his background. And, you know, when pushed, you know, the journalist said, well, look, property developers can be working class. And lots of people on the left were like, no, no, they can't, um, which is a position I agree with. But then you sort of see this cultural, cultural definition of class is constantly being used as a cudgel against the left. Uh, you see it in members of the current, like, shadow front bench of the nominally, like, left and workers' party, you know, talking about how they were raised on free school meals and a council estate and, you know, very difficult, like, working class upbringing. And that sort of formed the politics that they have now, which is to reform the NHS or or whatever. Um, and, you know, this, this idea that you can be a, a working class person who then really buys into a basically Thatcherite conception of politics is fine, but you're not really allowed to sort of have your sympathies the other way. You're not allowed to be a culturally, you're not really allowed to be a middle class person who subscribes to a socialist sort of socioeconomic program. So I think a lot of this is just shaped by um, by the media. And you have to remember, like, the media is overwhelmingly middle class uh, profession, like, you know, more than 40 percent of British journalists are privately educated compared with 7% of the wider population. And so that's an industry that just to get into, you know, firstly, you have to have like parental support. Uh, and secondly, you know, I mentioned earlier, this sort of social vocational mixing of sort of how to get ahead in a, a job. And so certain kind of social codes that will get you ahead as a, as a journalist. Uh, and so thus form this idea of, of class in contemporary Britain, and, you know, I read that Sam Friedman article that you talked about and, you know, he was sort of saying like, you know, why do so many middle class Brits think of themselves as working class? And I was like, well, you know, because there's a big media network encouraging them to do that for reactionary reasons. Is there a way to think about, you know, you said, talking about the, the kind of middle class as working class, is a, is a kind of cudgel often used on the left. Is there a way to kind of think about that from the left? You know, you don't have to be Wes Street and then kind of constantly talk about his background in how that led to his awful kind of uh, low church that right politics to to think you know I think in particular something like you know the discussions that go on in the US mainly associated with people like Vivek Chipper about the PMC professional managerial class mm. in that kind of schema that they don't fit into this kind of easy definition you know they're not they don't definition they don't own their middle class they don't own the means of production they certainly you know they're not kind of factory owners they're I mean, in effect, they're you and I, right? Like the three of us here. Again, throughout the 20th century, I think, you know, in response to the rise of like 
class-based socialist politics, all sorts of different tactics designed to stave stave that off. And one of which was the creation of like different levels of managerial class and the creation of like middle managers. You know, middle manager is not really a position that exists, you know, at the time like Marx and Engels are writing, not anywhere like the same way. But, you know, people who were designed to create various dilutions between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and even the aristocracy. And I don't know how we think about that from the left, except to, you know, try and stop those people dominating our politics. But of course, you know, in Britain and in the US, those people are very much in control of the nominally sort of left parties and a two-party system uh, and have reacted very, very, very badly to any suggestion recently that they should be the junior partners in a coalition rather than the, like, dominant ones. And one of my problems with though, the kind of dismissive attitude of, you know, people to to effectively the kind of middle class and the left is that it then very easily flips into the opposite, which is a kind of a slightly patronizing view of the working class. You know, I don't know how you avoid that because, you know, no one wants to be dominated, as you say, kind of by, you know, a bunch of middle class folk in, you know, left movements that are nominally there to like, you know, liberate the working class. Like, how, It's a really kind of difficult thing to think through, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost this idea that like the, the working class is this like fantastical, abstract, like group that doesn't exist, but is like utilized as political football for whoever wants it at any time yeah completely and like you know i think thinking back you know to to how we began the kind of discussion from this and I suppose some of the complicated ways i try and think through class my own kind of class background and often fail more often than not to think through it properly but you know my experience of kind of growing up working class wasn't particularly pleasant also it wasn't particularly kind of politically left you know, my react, my kind of joining the left was in many ways a kind of reaction against the kind of life worlds that working class people have to live in. You know, it's 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 really really awful <laughs> to be like to not to have very very little money, and you know, often the ways you deal with that are, you know, my kind of think about my grandparents who were kind of obsessed with this kind of little kind of individualist respectability, and actually a lot of that came from he was a. Grandad was a trade unionist in the kind of precursor of the RMT. His wife, though, was this kind of pretty awful woman, actually. Uh, she was just obsessed with how she was viewed, how she was seen. And it was this kind of like eking out this kind of like home, this kind of like bourgeois respectability in these kind of completely like preposterous, you know, working class conditions. It doesn't lend itself to, you know, militant politics. You know, I don't think there's a kind of any easy way to th- think through this, but I'm never quite sure if the kind of professional middle class, you know, I suppose what you're saying, Juliet, kind of opposite casual to kind of beat the beat the liberals with also kind of works to really describe that. How would you describe your class background? I think you said before petty bourgeois. Is I mean, that right? petty bourgeois, or sometimes I describe it as upper lower middle class, yes. um, <laughs> which I think is about right. I quite like including all of the levels in it. I mean, partly I do that because I feel I've had quite a lot of mobility within that middle class. So yeah, I grew up in a semi-detached house in Surrey to parents who both worked full-time. My mum was a district nurse and my dad was a middle manager at a plastics uh, factory. And really the sort of key event uh, in my youth for thinking about class was going to a private school at Raggett Grammar for two years between the age of 10 and 12 and then leaving because my family couldn't afford the fees and then going to a, a comprehensive school and seeing very, very sharply what life opportunities you got, what education you got, 
and what sort of life you were being molded for, depending on whether or not you could pay to go to a school that would sort of mould you for public life or just a school that would just gear you up to just get a job and keep the cogs of society turning in that way. So, yeah, that was that was really how I came to to class politics. And I think that experience made me a socialist more than any other. And that was the kind of private school you were at. wasn't always a private school. I know this because of Keir Starmer. Yes, he's a, a famous... local boy made good, grew up in a pebble dash semi, his dad was a tool maker, sort of the earth, working class, uh, small business owner from Surrey. And yeah, he was at Ragged Grammar School uh, when it converted to a fee-paying school. So I was there in 92 to 94, and he was there in the, the 70s with uh, Fatboy Slim and David Walliams and uh, Andrew Sullivan, the conservative gay commentator in the States, they all got the same bus to that school together. So um, I like to think I came out all right. See, so. when you say like, you know, you kind of lower, upper, whatever it was, middle <laughs> class, you know, that is pretty kind of strict terms. You think about that in that is your kind of background is fairly set, right? Yeah, but I feel I had quite a lot of mobility within within that middle class. Uh, so there are points where I definitely felt precarious and obviously during the not just the austerity years but sort of getting a graduation in the the Blair period having a degree and then finding that getting that degree didn't really open up the sort of life opportunities that it maybe I thought it would or it might would have done 10 or 20 years earlier working a number of just dead-end jobs and then gradually moving towards ending up working for an arts university which is sort of archetypally middle class profession and then finding that become very precarious as well and indeed being out on strike this month uh, with the UCE. So finding that actually these signifiers of middle-classness, these traditional sort of cultural vocational signifiers of middle-classness, didn't actually bring in the sort of financial, sort of socioeconomic position uh, that traditionally it would. And I think that's been one reason why, you know, like a lot of people 10 or 15 years before me, people engaged with the counterculture, people who were interested in communists and socialist writing and history move further to the right. And I think one of the main reasons I haven't is just because, you know, have remained pretty much as precarious and finding it as difficult to accrue any assets or generally buy my way into sort of property owning democracy. It's just as difficult as it was when I graduated 20 years ago. It's interesting what you say about kind of the, the declining middle class, I suppose, something kind of similar in, in some ways to kind of my own background, which was my parents were working class sons and daughters, one on one side of, of farmers, the other side of people who worked on the railway, grandfather worked on the railway, was a, a train guard, you know, pretty classical kind of blue collar jobs. And then my parents both had kind of dreams of raising themselves up to a kind of technical middle class, I'd probably say. My dad was a mechanic and, and that was his kind of dream of escape for that. And then they went into owning pubs. And then when I was, just before I turned into my kind of teen years, probably 10 or 11, my parents went bankrupt and lost everything. So it was kind of this slow kind of ascent up and then this kind of precipitous decline down. And I think that's really, in many ways, I think that's also, like you say, the, the kind of experience of your own kind of slipping out of the middle class precarious as that feels for you, perhaps it wouldn't have done for your parents. That's kind of coloured your politics. I think pretty much the same experience in a very kind of different terms coloured my own experience of coming towards the left. You know, I think my own kind of left background is basically formed in those moments where everything kind of turned to shit um, in my kind of childhood. I suppose you see very 
easily the just how kind of class determines everything. And I suppose so. Nihao, you're in many ways the kind of uh, lucky outsider in this, having not been like you know you weren't uh, brought up in England. What's your kind of experience of coming here, particularly and seeing the kind of structures of class? Yeah, so I mean, my class position is quite complex. Uh, I mean, Egypt is a very class-conscious society, even more so than here, if that's possible. Like, the dividers are quite, like, distinct, and the forms of, like, gated communities and all of that. So my own class position is, I was raised by my single mom, but in a historically rich part of town in Zamalek, but none of my parents are business owners. It's just that my maternal grandparents, whose house I was raised in, they both did a PhD in art in Europe uh, that was funded by the state during Nasser's time. Uh, so they kind of like occupied kind of like a socially high class status, but not necessarily like made a lot of money. And uh, until high school, I went to a national Egyptian school. Then I had to fight with both of my parents to get me into an American high school that was kind of affordable so that I could take the SATs and like you know, have a future. <laughs> and then I went, I was able to go to the bougiest <laughs> university in uh, Egypt, the American University in Cairo, on an academic and sports scholarship, where I was basically hanging out with the kids of, you know, the richest businessmen in Egypt. Uh, so that was like kind of the social class I hung out with, but I wasn't necessarily as rich as them. And then coming here also, like, London is a class-conscious society, but not as much as Egypt, where you really do, like, only, you know, get to <laughs> hang out with or, like, be, exist in the same circles as friends and friends of friends. And you can see everything is, like, classes segregated by area almost. Yeah, it's interesting, because I think that's, you know, how class kind of functions, and particularly how it's seen in, in contemporary Britain. It's not in that, as you say, it's not kind of in strict terms necessarily and I imagine also the fact that you're not English yeah. probably also determines you know the kind of the way that you're read in kind of class terms you're kind of you exist in a slightly kind of nebulous category in terms of how you're kind of purely how you're read right yeah you know you're not and it's seen interesting in kind of how people terms. can see me as like sometimes here people can see me as a bit bougie or something and it's like well, my family doesn't own assets in Egypt. I was just able to, at a later stage in, in life, get like an international education. It's because you wear nice clothes. <laughs> exactly. That's, <the> only reason. <laughs> That's a signifier. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I think this is one question I really want to think about today. And yeah, I suppose partly because I also I don't really know, but the fact that you know class isn't quite, you know, it's not as you say, kind of geographically defined in Bremen. Certainly most of my friends and I imagine most of all of our friends and kind of most listeners' friends as well, we will be not determined by a single kind of class group. Even if you go to kind of the, you know, Eton, you know, this kind of class tourism thing, you know, you go to Eton, you go out, go to the universities and you want to hang out with the kind of, as much as you're kind of, you're going to be ribbing them for it, you know, with the kind of working class or middle class, middle class kids, right? You know, you're certainly not going to be hanging out with only, I presume, only kind of other Etonians, you know, most half of my friends, maybe a third of them or something, you know, privately educated, you know, the rest of them are kind of, I wouldn't even be able to place them necessarily. So do you think this is kind of determined in some way how class is actually existing? How do you think classes are actually existing, particularly in the kind of, I suppose the, the experience we've all described here is of high cultural capital, low financial capital, and then kind of broadly up and down levels of kind of social capital, 
where, you know, your kind of friendship groups, your, you know, the kind of networks you exist in or your kind of personal contacts that you can use for, for work or for whatever else. I talked earlier about like mobility within the middle class and certainly with the sort of cultural background that I have, some of the sort of signifiers, just the way I speak, the way I sort of am capable of behaving in certain situations, you know, in this, the industries I work in, particularly as a sort of freelance writer. Uh, and journalists, there's often a strange mixture of the social and the vocational. And if you want to advance in your vocation, you have to behave in a certain way socially. And really, I have a sort of very uh, strong uh, hatred of the rich uh, <laughs> that I think comes from my schooling experience, like I spoke about earlier. But also my cultural interests. I mean, quite instinctively, as a teenager, uh, was very into like pop music in its broader sense, the punk, post-punk, and things like that. And took in a lot of not so much Marxist politics, I think, but sort of situationist politics and sort of new left politics, and just ended up sort of rebelling to some extent against the sort of class path that you know, maybe my parents might have expected me to take. Uh, and my interest in a certain type of pop culture that emerged in the post-war period, a lot of that pop culture was made by an alliance of people like me, like sort of particularly like petty bourgeois people who hated middle-class life and maybe like upper working-class people whose parents might have been sort of socialists or social democrats and had more opportunities educationally um, and creatively in the post-war period um, due to that sort of age of cultural democracy. You're talking like Joy Division or something? Uh, so very much Joy Division, yeah. It's pretty much all I listened to for about 18 months was, was Joy Love Division. Joy Division. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they were very much that my favourite band. But, you know, The Smiths, The Fall, I mean, there's a wonderful anecdote in Marky Smith's autobiography where somebody wants to join The Fall and tries to impress them by carrying a copy of Crime and Punishment. And they basically all laugh at him because he says that, Marky Smith says, look, you know, we all read that when we were 15. Uh, and, you know, this sort of like hard as nails, you know, like working class, like guy from Salford, stopping just short of beating somebody up for not having read crime and punishment as a teenager. It feels like a very different time, perhaps. So that was the sort of cultural component to to my politics, really. And, you know, to be honest, if you go to the part of the country that I grew up in, I always say that Rygate, if all of Europe went communist, like Rygate would be the last place to fall. Like, it's so stultifyingly middle class, and it just surprises me that more people don't just recoil in horror, which is, like, the basis of of my politics, really. Got to say, until you, I, I never even heard of Rygate. Sorry. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's, it's not very good. Don't yeah, go good. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, you know, it's like kind of your experience as well. Kind of, what is your experience of class in London? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel that every, like, almost all areas here have, even if it's a rich, rich area, it has, like, uh, council housing is like if you think about West London and like Grenfell being for example in Notting Hill I don't feel that's the same way in Egypt I feel there are like there's no rich area that has also has like you know working classes living there and like increasingly it's becoming more suburbanized and like the business owners or whatever the rich classes are moving to the suburbs and moving like way outside of the city and then like even areas that were considered like wealthy back in the day now are like people who used to live there are moving to the suburbs mm -hmm. to gated communities and it's become increasingly like if you're quite wealthy you're like siloed from the rest of society 
in in a quite like alarming way, I think. trying to think about a sort of potential solution on the left i mean one approach is to try and think about on what terms and which political issues you can build coalitions on uh, and how to get what you want dan evans's book a nation of shopkeepers all about the petty bourgeoisie i know he talks about the way in which like the corbyn labor project was largely defeated by brexit and, you know, a focusing of that movement back onto what was primarily a middle class concern and a sense that Corbyn's Labour was ended up being forced to make the same mistake of previous sort of Labour administrations or organisations, which was to say to the more working class end of their coalition, look, we'll get to you later. But certainly it's true that in 2017, I think the sort of new, new left did quite a good job of building a coalition around austerity. And the fact that, you know, for people from like working class backgrounds or in traditionally like working class jobs uh, and this sort of dowdly mobile middle class, actually, you know, you could build a coalition around what austerity was doing to opportunities, individuals and communities, difficult as it is. And yeah, I mean, I, I said earlier, you know, I think one of the things we are just up against is, you know, it's what, 100 and... 45 years, I think, since Marx and Engels wrote the uh, the manifesto, maybe slightly less, but, you know, not too far off two centuries. And pretty much everything in political and workplace culture over the last nearly 200 years has been built around staving off an effective coalition against established socioeconomic relations. We're up against quite a lot here, and <laughs> I'm not sure I've got the answers. And also to add to that, we're also up against this idea of class as an identity, actually. And like you said, the media dividing the working class on national lines um, and appealing to nationalism and um, the imperialist project to win the rank and file of the working class and divide the working class amongst themselves and also like the working class and other nations. So it becomes a fight for a nationalist working class rather than anything else and or the immediate interests of the working class that are just like winning minor concessions and that's it. It's interesting when you said that you know one of the things we're up against is the kind of idea that class is an identity. I thought you were going to take in a different direction which would be when you say kind of class is an identity I think of your man with the pizza restaurant who I presume he claimed that he was working class because of his accent, which is tends to be class and identity tends <laughs> yeah. to be that kind of view. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you were saying, actually, I think, you know, maybe is, is kind of a more interesting way of looking at it, which is, you know, seeing it from kind of an international perspective, class and identity as in a fundamentally kind of British one. Your, your main ident- mode of identification is with a British imperial or kind of state building project now. And even within that, like the quote unquote white working class, you know what I mean? Like there are like divisions in that as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're always going to, of course. And like, but then how do we think, I I know, you know, we're all going to be, you know, one of the kind of questions that kind of always going to circle around when you, you bring up anything like classes, questions of identity. And I think, again, this kind of like liberal responses tends to be, well, 
what about these other identities, you know, that kind of like cut through? How do they affect class? How do they affect how we think about class? Should they? Should we just kind of park that discussion? Identity politics? How do we think about it? <laughs> I mean, I'm a crude materialist, so I'm like, yes, anything identity-based must go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, to, to go back to what I was saying, like even like evoking stuff like the, the nationalist project of the working class and like evoking, for example, when we think about the British army and like we've seen talks about that recently when like um, pitting them against the striking ambulance workers, for example, or the striking NH NHS workers. But it's, yeah, I mean, just to pick up on the sort of thread yeah. about like patriotism yeah. and nationalism yeah. as something that is positioned as an as a, um, a sort of replacement of sort of more Marxist class politics mm -hmm. and as an opposition to quote-unquote identity politics. Like patriotism is the ultimate form of identity politics. Exactly. And it's never framed as such. Mm -hmm. um, again, for just incredibly reactionary reasons. And it sort of ties in with, yeah, this idea that you've been talking about that class is sort of, um, or working classness is positioned in our public discourse as basically being uh, someone with a regional accent and reactionary opinions. And it's immensely sort of frustrating to to try and cut through that on the left. And, you know, obviously lots of us knocking on doors in the pouring rain and freezing cold in 2019 were never going to cut through all that in, uh, in hindsight. I was thinking when you were saying that, like, I, I promised myself before this, I wasn't going to, like, mention... Uh, the T word, Twitter, at all. But actually on Twitter, you, do, you, do you just see the kind of Dino discourse that happened? <laughs> so, you know, this Dino... So Dino is in, you know, I think it was like a Twitter kind of 4chan thing. Dino is uh, the guy from your hometown who never left, who now works at um, a call centre, head of assistant of sales at a call centre, owns his own kind of nice bar at home that's actually kind of an awful new build that's falling down in himself, uh, has an all kind of cream or grey interior. I mean, what they're talking about in this, you know, it's, it's a really kind of funny kind of typology because everyone recognises it. You know, he's got his well, wife, he's a beautician, you know, he's got his kind of Audi A4, whatever else. It's the petty bourgeoisie, right? That's who they're talking about there. Uh, and yeah, as Dan Evans said on um, on the popular show recently, you know, maybe some of the resentment is that Dino is like broadly happy with his life <laughs> <laughs> in a way that like maybe we're not. <laughs> so books don't make you happy? Uh, not the books I read <laughs> or the films I watch or like the plays I go to or the music I listen to. Yeah, I've made a terrible choice. Here. Yeah, I mean, I've made a series of terrible choices over a number of decades. I think one of the things about that class archetype, that kind of uh the the dino figure i mean that's i think is as again as kind of dan evans says it's that's mondeo man that's you know that was kind of tony blair's figure that he you know that kind of like every man middle england thatcher had essex man right yeah again kind of upwardly mobile culturally not part of the the kind of elites not uh you know has no university education or was it a few years ago barrett man it's the other one, kind of owns a bar at home. There was Workington Man in Workington. the 2019 election. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's, again, I think that's a replacement of a kind of thorough, proper materialist analysis of class for basically just this kind of like archetype that we all vaguely generally recognise, but isn't actually working class at all, you know, in a kind of like purely definitional sense or even a, 
you know, in a, a kind of, I don't think the deck, you know, purely kind of Marx's analytic definitional sense also kind of encompasses the kind of actual reality, which is uh, of class itself. You know, it is kind of cut, bisected by these cultural factors. It's kind of always going to be fragmented, turned in on itself, affected by different things. And, and ultimately, you know, a, f- a follower of E.P. Thompson, I think it's, it, you know, class becomes a class when it becomes a class for itself, when it forms the kind of movements that inculcate it. And in that way, we have very little working class now. You know, we have very, you know, the kind of movements that once held it together are pretty much all gone. The unions are kind of strong in certain sectors, but not kind of widely so. It's all been very deliberately destroyed. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, the kind of last, the last kind of uh, parting gift of kind of Thatcherism was to kind of like, you know, kick the last bit of it. And in many ways, we're kind of always going to be scrapping around in the kind of ruins now. You know, I suppose, how, how did we get here? You know, the kind of Thatcherite story. You know, how did that manage to get the cachet to win so many elections? How did, how did we get to this point? And I suppose the other, you know, we've spoken a lot about the, the working class. Who's at the other end of the spectrum? It's not just the kind of middle class and the, the working class, is it? There's also very rich people. How, who, what class are they? Well, there's two different types, right? I mean, there's the traditional aristocracy who still very much exist. And in the um, 19th century, I think, in the wake of the French Revolution, I think there's a sort of unspoken but commonly understood settlement that the aristocracy will at least appear to hand over politics to this kind of emerging bourgeoisie. And in return, the aristocracy will be allowed to do whatever they want. And of course, they're still politically very influential. So when you say aristocracy and bourgeoisie here, you mean aristocracy being landowners? The landowning yeah. class, yeah. Exactly, landowning And the bourgeoisie class. then being the kind of, you know, it's the industrial revolution, they're the, the mill owners. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, they're sort of property owners. And so the landowning class and then the capitalist class, Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, the proletariat for a while are considered just dispensable particularly as the empire expands, there's this understanding that actually the proletariat are needed to fight for and to just uphold the empire to some extent, or to, you know, go to the Somme, kind of, uh, yeah. things like that, basically. And so you have that old aristocracy that still kind of exists, and that settlement, I think, still exists to some extent. But yeah, like various types of, of new rich and, you know, the sort of post-war nouveau riche and then sort of contemporary people making a fortune out of the financial sector, out of tech. And the landlords. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, again, I think one of the things that, you know, I can see in your, the way you talk about it, you know, you're talking in effect about the kind of writing that Tom Nairn, who, who passed away recently, and, and Perry Anderson did from the 60s onwards, that you know, basically created a very kind of schematic but broad brush kind of historical sociology of how Britain's particular peculiar class system formed. And the base, I think the question they were trying to answer was, why don't we have a communist party? This was writing in the 60s and 70s when could have been for a while. The French Communist Party was certainly big, almost kind of dominant on the left. Yeah, Italian. Um, The Italian one was huge, you know, was very close to gaining power. Um, until they were basically kind of sold out. This is also kind of the midst of the Cold War. You know, in Britain, you had, you know, the, you had a, a kind of Catholic insurgency in, in Ulster. You had a kind of increasing kind of the, the first waves of kind of the SNP in Scotland. Uh, same in kind of the, the rise, kind of much smaller, but in Wales of a different form of nationalism. You had kind of in the seventies, you got kind of big industrial revolts. 
Um, and they were trying to think, trying to understand that, you know, and I think in that way, you can see how landlords became so dominant. Does that mean that a landlord's aristocrats? I mean, they fit into that more sort of like upper middle class, capitalist class that we were just talking about, right? Yeah. And I mean, recently there's been a, a rise of the, you know, landlords and like arguably you can say that both dominant political parties in Britain are trying to appeal to landlords more than anyone else. Both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party have landlords in mind when they <laughs> make up their policy. Yeah, and the dominant schism between Conservative and Labour voters during the Corbyn period, so 2017 and 2019, was property ownership. Mm -hmm. And of course, that kind of skewed a lot by age because of the effects of like the Thatcherite sell-off of um, council housing and certain other factors. Um, so it's been, again, the media have used the age gap to kind of obfuscate the kind of property and class issues that are at play here. Yeah, forget meritocracy. The best way to become middle class and working class in the 80s was to live in a council house and happen to be able to buy one, right? Exactly, yeah. You know, that was the kind of primary means of kind of climbing the ladder of, of class. Yeah, I realised we are kind of asking was there, you know, the, whether they were aristocrats is a kind of horrible question to ask. <laughs> I actually don't think they are They're at not. all and no one could yeah. say that. But, like, you know, they do have a in many ways, the kind of property-owning... It's a property-owning democracy, Brian, right? Yeah. I mean, that was the thing Thatcher tried to inculcate and I think did very successfully. Uh, and again, you know, Dan Evans makes this argument that Thatcherism was really about inculcating this sort of petty bourgeois set of values into the whole country. And in that respect, it was sort of horrifyingly successful. Uh, and yeah, you know, this sort of aspirational, property-owning, uh, sort of self-mythologizing... Uh, attitude to, to life has had a real stranglehold over this country and its politics, I think, as we've seen throughout our lifetimes. Even as a trend now, if you, you're on Twitter, not left Twitter, but just in general, or like TikTok or any other social media, like the advice that those self-help gurus or whatever, they give like doing like financial literacy courses other than like crypto and investing they're always like get on the property ladder like straight away and then you see these like horrible people always being like living in london being like oh i bought a really cheap flat in the north to jump on the property ladder and i'm like renting it out and then i'll buy another one and then that'll enable me to buy a flat in london that's kind of the aspiration now to jump on the property ladder because it's also seen as like a quick way to get a stable income or jump up a class or something like that. This is that kind of Thomas Piketty thing, right? Yeah, that, yeah. You know, it, we, we live, you know, after the base of the 1970s, after the kind of neoliberal revolution, mm. we live in a society and an economy where asset ownerships, so that's, whether that's crypto, even though, you know, if you bought crypto, I'm sorry, you've probably lost it all now. <laughs> exactly. um, well, definitely if you bought those kind of stupid monkey pictures. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's asset ownership. When that pays, the dividends you get from that, you know, it's in kind of inflated value every year, whatever else, pays more than wages. You'd be, you know, if you have money, you're a mug to keep on working and not just kind of sit yeah, back. Passive invested. income's the dream, right? Yeah, exactly. Passive income, that's... that's and if you can't <laughs> afford in London, buy somewhere else where you can buy a flat for like £200,000 or like less. Yeah, so what do we do with landlords? The dead Kennedys had some ideas. <laughs> Thank you.
I think one thing I've noticed here is that a lot of the, you know, so-called upper classes don't like to appear rich, if that's a if that's an accurate observation. Meanwhile, in Egypt, like the rich people I was hanging with are like the sons and daughters of business owners. If you've become rich in Egypt recently, it's probably after the 1970s. There's no really like, there's very rare if any like old money types because of, you know, what Nasser did in the 50s and 60s and like, you know, taking some people's land and factories and stuff. Uh, So if you've become rich, it's probably after uh, Sadat's open door policies in the 70s. And then I noticed it a lot as I was going to university there, like, you want to look rich. Like, it's like the brand names are there, the cars are there, you want to show off, and definitely more social signifiers. Whereas here, it's almost as if, like, the rich types are just like, I- I'm ashamed to be rich, or like, I'm trying to, even in like the ways they, they spend money, they're like quite stingy, actually, and like, quite, like, they don't want to appear rich or they don't want to... Particularly you know, in this time of like economic downturn as well and the cost of living shooting up. Uh, there's a spate of articles in the British media at the moment with this sort of competitive thrift amongst people who can afford not to be thrifty. Exactly. And, uh, it's incredibly um, antagonising. Yeah, so the kind of the Nairn Anderson thesis, you know, said it was, it was published in the, the mid-60s, I think, you know, and... and in the New Left Review by Perry Anderson and Tom Nairn and kind of a few other thinkers kind of associated with it. But they're the, they're the main two, hence the kind of name, the, the Nairn-Anderson thesis. And, you know, one of the reasons why it's been so, you know, persistently kind of influential is because it is such a big picture. You know, it, it takes this sweep of English history from the 1600s to, you know, the present day. Initially, it was the 60s. And then Perry Anderson again updated it in the 1980s. And then again, Two years ago, I think, with an essay called Eucania Perpetua, Perpetua, I, um, which is kind of typical kind of Perry Anderson coinage there. You know, it seeks to explain in this kind of broad brushstroke schematic way how Britain ended up where we are today, how we ended up with the politics that we have, the politicians we have, more importantly than all of that, how we ended up with this kind of supine, dreadful kind of cloyingly deferential Labour Party that we've had since its inception in 1907. We've never had a, a kind of revolutionary party here. You know, people will point to the, you know, this high point of the Communist Party in the 1930s, but that was, you know, 20,000 members. We've never had anything bigger. We never will. And I think in that way, it's, 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 it makes a very compelling argument. It's hard to argue against, I think partly because it's just so broad brushstroke. How do you argue with something which is saying, well, the reason we have no revolutionary party is because we didn't effectively kill off the monarchy in the 1640s. How do you, you know, it, it's hard to argue against. But I think also it does kind of illuminate a huge amount about the kind of broad brush, the broad kind of sweep of British history, and also why it, it, it's kind of deeper cultural, political, social effects as well. You know, I think a big part of it is kind of the intellectual culture that's bred by, by this ruling class, this aristocracy. Do you guys think this still kind of holds? I mean, I think about this a lot. Um, and obviously the contrast between Britain, which never had a proper revolution, you know, we had a civil war, briefly abolished our monarchy, somehow managed to replace it with something even worse and then had to restore it. Um, as a contrast to the French Revolution, which, you know, actually took several goes to really secure. And it's only really by the end of the 19th century that the 
the sort of French enlightened liberal democracy is really properly secured. But, you know, the French Revolution did involve taking out a huge chunk of their aristocracy. And yet you compare British and French politics today, and I think they're they're pretty similar, really. Uh, if anything, the choice before the French electorate now, I think, is probably worse than the choice that we've got. Except the French know how to riot. The French do know how to riot <laughs> and, yeah, how to, yeah, strike. Uh, I mean, we're catching them up on that, I guess. Um yeah, I don't I don't know if we would necessarily have secured a society that is not dominated by the sort of upper middle class if we'd had a, a different type of revolution in Britain. Do you think it still holds anyhow? The idea that kind of, you know, Britain is still effective. The reason why we're kind of you know, is the politics we have here is so kind of like pretty pretty terrible and archaic, you know, still got a monarchy, whatever else, is because um of this kind of, you know, we're still dominated by aristocrats, in effect. You know, this kind of, you see in politics, right? The kind of the amount of Etonians. Yeah. And I think both are tied together, right? Like, w would there be the same aristocracy if there was no monarchy? Like, it becomes just a question of, like, which can be removed first? Like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, even the way we strike here, even the way we write or whatever, uh, it is tied, like, you can't separate the idea of this, like, th this, like, feeling of servileness, like, being servile is because you expect, like, you want to be ruled by someone who's better than you. Like, it, it, like if you think about Boris Johnson, some people compare him to Trump, but, like, I don't think the comparison is accurate because he's not an outsider like Trump was. He is, like you said, like went to Eton, like is part and parcel of the like the aristocracy. There's this like feeling that like you want someone who is better than you to govern you. So, and it is tied to like I think the monarchy. And I feel if the monarchy goes, and we'd be more open to <laughs> uh, you know other forms of uh, governance. And it does explain the deep conservatism that is pervasive in English society well, as a whole. To give a couple of examples. In 1848, there was a wave of revolutions across Europe. And the Chartists, who were the main insurrectionary or sort of insurgent movement at the time, didn't hold their big rally um, and march on London because it was raining. That's yeah, exactly. And then in, 19, uh, in 1926, a general strike um, the trade unions are offered power by the Bourbon government and they, they turn it down. So the kind of picture we've got from this is that, you know, broadly, Britain's kind of like left culture, but Britain's culture more generally is pretty conservative in, you know, again. And deferential. And yeah. deferential. We're going to talk in generalisations always. You know, you can always point to kind of exceptions, whatever, those who aren't. Right now, I think today, the day we're kind of recording this, there's nurses' strike, there's RMT, there's teachers. There's a huge strike wave at the minute. Do you think this is changing in some way, the kind of deferential culture of class? And how do we think about, you know, the kind of class nature of this current wave of strike, which is, you know, I think it, it's incredibly significant one. Well, Richard Seymour was talking today about the idea of negative solidarity, the idea that you destroy solidarity amongst the working class, the lower middle class, by creating a culture that says, well, why should someone else be better off than me? Why should someone else have something that I haven't got? And feels that that isn't working now and that actually support for the strikes keeps going up as the strikers become more prominent and the strikes become bigger. 
And I think that's probably true. I think that negative solidarity maybe has its limits. And, you know, sooner or later, people will be looking at this economic system that just, you know, concentrates wealth in this ever smaller number of hands and just says, no, this isn't right, not just for me, but for everybody. That gives me a little bit of cautious optimism, I think. Yeah, I mean, the economic conditions in this country have gotten so bad that they can't be ignored. It's become a question of life and death for many. And obviously, it's a it's a great thing that the strike wave is happening. But then again, one thing to consider and one thing to think about is what are the demands of the strike? If, if we put it in like, you know, the leftist or the Marxist framework we were talking about, it's not really the, the overthrow of capitalism, is it? It's just to get minor concessions again from the capitalist class and they are minor concessions and the capitalist class is still like fighting tooth and nail against them like don't want to give anything away and it would be obviously like a good relief or like a a really good band-aid if that happens and if the strikes the strikes are effective but then if you think about the longer term like do you think back to your question is it really like a revolutionary strike wave no I mean, no, no, no. Yeah. And, I, you know, I don't know what would turn it. But, you know, I think it's, as kind of Juliet was saying, the, one of the best ways to get rid of a kind of conservative complacency is not really being able to eat. Yeah. You know, if you, you know, if it does, you know, I, I'm I'm cautious against the kind of politics of the worst. You know, the worse things get, the better it'll be for the left. But it's certainly pretty bad at the minute. And we are seeing kind of more and more people kind of reacting against that. Hopefully that will continue. Whether that kind of feeds into anything bigger is beyond me to say. It's not for me to say. Do you think a general strike is possible soon? I mean, again, our historic precedent for it 100 years ago uh, 1926 is 1926, yeah. Yeah, is, is somewhat disappointing. You know, we've talked a bit about the Labour Party as like a historic break on radical activity in this country. And um, who to provide a bigger and better break on any kind of radical activity than a man who seems like he was like grown in a laboratory to suck the life out of a political movement. Uh, and that laboratory was uh, was in Rygate, as we talked about. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, my, my hopes aren't high. We're sort of maybe coalescing towards something close to a general strike. Um, and I think the fact that, you know, there is so little actual enthusiasm for what will replace this government if it's brought down might well act as a, as a break on that um, that idea. But um, we can but hope.